Hello, podcasters. Yakko Warner here. The only podcast we listen to in the Water Tower is An Elegant Weapon. So you clearly are among the geniuses of the world. Good night, everybody! An Elegant Weapon is brought to you by Nemesis Studios. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. and gentlemen, welcome to An Elegant Weapon, episode 186. My name is Jay, the Jedi Ross, and welcome back to the L5J Studios, kids. It is so wonderful to have you back here with me this week, because this week I'm bringing to you something very, very, very special, something near and dear to my own heart. This week I am having a conversation with one of my favorite writers of all time, Mr. John Ostrander. If you are not familiar with John Ostrander, I guarantee that you are familiar with his work. Uh, He is the creator of the modern-day version of The Suicide Squad. He has also been writing for Dark Horse Star Wars Expanded Universe comics for many years. He wrote for Republic, a couple Jedi series, and of course Star Wars Legacy. He's also the creator of his own series, Grimjack. He is also the creator of the character Oracle. Uh, Just ridiculous amounts of things that this guy has had his hand in, uh, including Martian Manhunter. uh, So many, so many awesome things, uh, including, surprisingly enough, what could have been but never was a Doctor Who stage drama that's right kids so crazy you're gonna hear some awesome stories mr ostrander is a bit of a legend in the business but other than that he's just a huge fanboy um so yeah we talk about his work uh we talk about his process uh we talk about his career but we also pretty much just fanboy out with all the cool things going on right now that he's been involved in in the past star wars legends of tomorrow uh hot girl him having worked on hawk world um the suicide squad of course uh, coming soon this summer we had so much fun stuff to geek out over and that's what we did um the one thing i regret that i didn't get to talk to him about because we recorded this uh previous to its release was the the final batman versus superman dawn of justice trailer i think i'm still hard over that one kids are you kidding me that first 30 seconds is the greatest thing I've ever seen on film. Are you kidding? You see what Batman does? I, I can't even talk about it. I, I, I have to let it process more because it, it was such a thing of beauty. It was unreal, stupid stoked for this movie. But, uh, yep, just a quick reminder that in a month, uh, we got C2E2 coming up, kids, and we, of course, will be there. An Elegant Weapon Invades C2E2 in Chicago, March 18th. Uh, then in April, we got the Great Philadelphia Comic Con. Uh, then in May, we've got the Motor City Comic Con. It's gonna be a huge year, kids, and, uh, this is evident of it. Um, I do apologize that this week's episode's audio quality isn't quite as clear and crisp as you're used to hearing on this show we had some minor technical difficulties with the uh, skype recording so we had to jump over to the backup the good old h1 but it picked things up fine so even though i don't sound quite as angelic as i usually do the conversation is more than audible uh just not quite as crisp as usual so i do apologize but uh, due to those technical difficulties we joined the conversation about uh two minutes into after we were talking and i realized it wasn't recording properly good thing i caught that before we talked for an hour but uh regardless please i hope you enjoy half as much as i did this conversation 
with the incredible, with the wonderful Mr. John Ostrander. This is Mixlock Production. Mr. John Ostrander. Apologies for the technical gremlins and such in the uh, internet, but uh, not to make us go over everything again, we were discussing Star Wars. We were discussing uh, your run on Star Wars and how differently from Episode 7, you jumped very far into the future as far as dealing with Luke's great-great-undetermined-which-great-grandchild or children. And uh, this was something that was your idea. This was something you thought of and you wanted to do yourself, yeah? Well, it's something that I, my uh, uh, my partner Jan Dersma, came up with together. Um, I'd had some luck before. Uh, I have my own character called Grimjack, and at one point I had drop kicked him a hundred years down his own timeline. And since that worked out pretty well, I thought it might be fun to do that here um, with Star Wars. You want to avoid tripping over continuity. Uh, because it can get very complicated, uh, and it gets hard sometimes to find a good story while just either trying to tie up some sort of uh, timeline or continuity problem, or or stepping on what I call continuity landmines. Yeah, kind of creating paradoxes for yourself uh, can be a difficult situation, I guess, especially a, a lot of people don't realize how expansive the expanded universe was like we're talking tens of thousands of years. Some of these stories were told, you know? Yeah. And I think tens of thousands of stories. <laughs> and, uh, and even if they weren't considered a canon, you know, the top level canon, they were still, you had to keep within what else had been done. And, uh, and yes, they had ways so that, uh, if you hadn't read a certain section, cause it's hard to read all of it. Or, or be even aware of all of it, but uh, they certainly had people. They had Lucas Film Licensing, who was very good about letting you know what was what, and they had their own continuity cops and stuff. So, uh, so they were good about that. But it was easiest to devise stories when you don't worry about stumbling over uh, other people's stories. Well, you mentioning you did sort of the same time jump type stuff with with Grimjack. Uh, it, are you a fan of that sort of thing? Because I I love stories that spanned vast amounts of time like chronology is a very very exciting thing for me that's one of the things that drew me to star wars i wasn't a fan initially because of the movies it, for me it was the books and the comics and this whole other area you know so is that something that you enjoy working with uh it's a tool that uh i can enjoy using but uh you don't want to overuse it you know uh but it can be liberating because you can use the motifs that have been part of the uh, thing and the history and at the same time you know, invent something new you know and, uh, because you want to make something new for the readers you want something that they'll get excited by and surprised by absolutely speaking of, of time you did uh, I believe it was unproduced but you wrote a Doctor Who audio drama as well did you not I did. Uh, actually, it wasn't an audio drama. It was supposed to be a stage play. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Have they ever done anything like that before? Uh, well, they did have a couple of Doctor Who uh, stage plays, I think, done in England back around Pertwee's time. Um, but nothing had been done. And at the time when I was proposing uh, the play, it was before uh, Doctor Who returned. So it was during the interruption shall we call it right because i did read that it was centered around the seventh doctor you were going to write it actually uh we were creating uh a 13th doctor of our own at that point because, <laughs> what <laughs> uh uh yeah you know uh we wanted to see what would happen when doc when the doctor had gone through all of his incarnations and uh, because once again it's a way of avoiding timeline confusion yeah, you know, so you know all the wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff. That's incredible that you were thinking of that before it ever came about. Like that's yeah. amazing, and I'd never actually considered a Doctor Who stage play. That could be that could be quite entertaining. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
our our conceit at the time is when the it's when we first encounter this doctor, we suggest that because uh, the change of of the doctors between um, uh, heart uh, no not heart no um, just before birthday. Uh, before, second. yes, yes. Well, the second was, uh, oh, now I'm blanking out. It's, uh, Patrick. Yes, yes, Patrick, uh, oh my goodness, this is shameful. I know, <laughs> I, I know we're failing our, our yeah. Oh, the Whovians are upset, but yes, the second doctor. <laughs> the second doctor, in between the second and third doctors, I, uh, uh, the second doctor was forced to reincarnate by, by the Time Lords into the third doctor. So we theorized that there was sort of a half-life left. Patrick Troughton, I apologize. Patrick Troughton, yes. <laughs> well, I actually met once, which was lovely. Amazing. Uh, uh, yes, there was, we uh, we theorized that there was a, a sort of half-life left in him, and, uh, and so they preserved, so the Time Lords preserved his body against the time that they would need the doctor to show up again. Wow. That's that's such foresight, and <laughs> and it's such. I'm, I'm also picturing the spectacle in my head of maybe seeing like seeing the TARDIS on stage itself. That would be really fun to do live, you know. That's yeah. uh, that's something they should maybe uh, think about venturing into again. That would be pretty darn cool. Were you a Doctor Who fan before that, or did something? Oh yeah. Oh okay. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the whole genesis of the Doctor Who uh, play was because I love Doctor Who, and I was. And because I was an actor in Chicago at the time, I was going, boy, I would really love to play the doctor. And I realized that the odds of a relatively unknown actor in Chicago who was an American ever playing the doctor was, like, really slim. <laughs> so uh, I thought, well, yeah, but since I'm in Chicago theater and I know a lot of people here, what if we did a, a Chicago stage play version, if I can get the rights? And then I thought maybe, I, maybe then I could play the doctor, although... The really odd thing is, is that I didn't cast myself in the part when the time came. So, uh, <laughs> what was your what was your vision of the Thirteenth Doctor? Um, that uh, he was a little bit, I guess, closer to uh, Tom Baker in some ways. Um, but uh, I know there's a bit of lo- of a lot of the different Doctors in him. Uh, you know. As as is typical of the doctor, he knows everything. Right. Like, um, has a tendency to throw himself into things, uh, and and acquires companions. That's that's kind of very much where they went with the thirteen doctor too. Uh, yeah. Capaldi has quite a bit of the other doctors that he likes to throw out and fun little things. Probably more so than a lot of the past doctors as well. Are you enjoying Capaldi's run? Oh yes. Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, in general, you know, I, I'm a big Doctor Who fan anyway, and I think Capaldi was a very good choice um, after the last two Doctors, who were young, and and I love them both. But uh, uh, it was time to switch gears a little bit. I completely agree, and I, I think he's fantastic. I'd never heard of him before he came along, and I, I'm one of those new, like I remember Doctor Who as a kid, you know, growing up in the early '80s late 70s, and, uh, you know, I, I always remembering the, the man with the scarf in the, in the funny box on TV, but being a little too young to, to follow the show to basically be able to stick with it. And then uh, when, you know, the reboot happened back in, what was it, 2006? Yes, uh, yeah, that's, I, hooked me right on. I, I, I couldn't believe how incredibly well-written this show was on, on a regular basis. Like, it's some of the greatest sci-fi writing I've ever experienced, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what I've loved, in fact, uh, Doctor Who influenced uh, my writing on Grimjack because uh, one thing that I noted from Doctor Who was that they could do any kind of story that they wanted to. They even did a Western for crying out loud. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> yeah. I don't think the best episode, but still, the very fact that they could do that, I, th- I found very interesting. So when I was creating Grimjack, I wanted a character that I could do any kind of story with. Yeah, just leave it completely open. That's that's a smart way to go, you know? It's That way you definitely don't get bored of the situation, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
it's uh, that was really cool that season. They spent all that time in America. You know, it's uh, yeah. it's weird. Me here in Canada, I'm right outside Toronto, and uh, there's always been a big Who presence, just because it's it's been shown here ever since its inception. Just because uh, you know the connection. In fact, Doctor Who created in part by a Canadian. Yeah. Which is a, a cool little thing. Um, we always have parts of things. Like, we had part of creating Doctor Who. We had part of creating Superman. You know, we always sneak it in there. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty cool thing. Um, have you ever maybe tried to get more involved uh, since doing the stage play? Have you ever maybe sent them a script or an idea or a pitch? No. I, uh, there was one point uh, talk about my doing one of the audio um, plays, but that just didn't uh, work out. It's uh, it's great that they do that, though. Have you ever heard any yeah. of those? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah they're being, you know wonderful stuff. You know, and they're bringing back some of the doctors who otherwise you wouldn't even hear about. You know, so uh, uh, it's it's just really interesting how they're making that work. It's a it's a cool time for things like audio dramas, especially with the podcast boom, because there's yeah. there's a lot of cool shows out there who are doing that. They're just podcasts that are you know like Serial and so many other ones. It's it's amazing what people. I've actually I've had the chance to do a, fo- a few small like voiceover roles for friends who are doing like actual play gaming adventure audio plays and stuff. It's 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 a really exciting time, you know. Yeah, and uh, with all the audiobooks that they're doing as well, uh, uh, the whole Harry Potter phenomenon yes. you know, also was um, was very well represented in the uh, in the audiobooks. It's very cool that they're going to be doing that uh, stage play, and it's like thirty thirty years later, I think, a thirty yeah. year later sequel. Oh, that's uh, it's so exciting, you know. I I think I definitely prefer a long time sequel to a, a straight up reboot. But yeah. uh, you kind of walk the edge yourself. Uh, you know, you're you're kind of the king of the reboot in a way. You know, uh, especially with Suicide Squad, of course. Yeah. Um. Do you enjoy that particularly, or is that just kind of fallen into your lap where they've been like, "Hey, make this better"? <laughs> I think I think both. Um, at the time uh, when I get a chance to do some of the things uh, that I've been involved in, particularly at DC. Uh, at first, it was just, well, hi, this is available. Uh, what can you do with it? And so I would think, well, okay, what can I do with it? Um, squad started that way. Uh, I, I've told this story before, but I can retell it again. Uh, at the time, I wanted to play with uh, a different series called Challengers of the Unknown, which I considered and still consider one of the great titles in in comic books, you know, challengers of the unknown. That sounds great. <laughs> but somebody else was doing something with it. And so Bob Greenberger, uh, uh, who was the editor uh, over DC, uh, said, well, we have this other title that no one's doing anything with. It's called Suicide Squad. What about that? I went, Suicide Squad? What a stupid name. <laughs> who in their right minds would belong to something that calls itself Suicide Squad? And then I thought, hmm, somebody who doesn't have any other choice. Okay, who doesn't have any other choice? Prisoners. Ooh, bad guys. Hmm, Mission Impossible. Hmm, Dirty Dozen. (laughs) And I was off and running. Oh, that's great that it just started rolling off just the title. You were like, you like reverse engineered it. Yeah, yeah, and, and start off with me going, nah, that's stupid. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> I'm sure it was a crazy thing then, just as as it is now. I mean, that the fact that there's a movie called The Suicide Squad, you know, that's... yeah, that's hard for me to believe. Yeah, I mean, uh, years ago they were talking about doing a, a TV show of it, and um, uh, which of course never came came about, but. Uh, uh, I was going, uh, maybe you want to call it Task Force X, because I'm not sure that, you know, parents would want to let their kids watch something that's called Suicide Squad. <laughs> it's very true. It's actually one thing I've always admired about DC a lot, is their boldness to try things at times. Espe- yeah. I mean, you figure when you have such epic, uh, iconic characters as DC does, that they'd be more protective, but they're, they're, they've actually been pretty good over the years. Like, I particular, I'm a fan of the New 52. 
I thought uh-huh. I thought some really really cool stuff came out of that, and you know I don't mind a, a new approach to something once in a while. So you know it, it it's really bold of them to do. So it, it's cool that you got that, and you went pretty crazy. I mean, yeah, Deadshot going from like you got to explain this one to me. How does Deadshot go from a top hat and tails to like kind of? Well, when we were putting um, <laughs> the squad together, uh, at the time I had the. Uh, all the books of, that was who's who, which which would have pictures of the characters and descriptions of, of their background and stuff like that. And uh, Deadshot popped out to me because at first he had only appeared as uh, I, I, this is really wonky: top hat, tails, domino mask, <laughs> and uh, six shooters strapped to to his waist. Yeah. <laughs> A combination of Wild West and Raffles. And, uh, but um, Steve Englehart and uh, Marshall Rogers took the uh, took the character, redesigned him, and I really liked that redesign. I thought that was a really cool looking costume. So I said, "Well, give him to me. You know, we'll put him in the squad." And he had very little done with him, you know, uh, very little background information about him. So I just took, again, what I like to do is I like to take what I call as a given, something that is already established, and then sort of extrapolate from that and figure out, well, okay, if this is true, then would this be true? And uh, and that's what I did with uh, Lawton and Deadshot. Uh, I was impressed with the fact that early on, you know, uh, he also started in Gotham City as well. So uh, And he also came from rich parents. And sort of like what would happen if Bruce Wayne had gone bad in some ways. Right. Uh, and I just added uh, this other thing, not so much a death wish with him as um, I'd seen this TV interview with a guy who was a hitman who was in jail. And, God, he, um, in just his description, just as he sat there on camera, some of the coldest eyes I've ever seen. And he talked about... Um, well, one of the things that he said was, "My life doesn't matter to me, so what? So why should your life matter to me?" You know, and I thought, "Hmm, that's interesting for Deadshot. If his own life doesn't matter to him, then nobody else's life is going to matter to him." Yeah, that's cool. That's it's such an interesting character, especially when it's your, you know, your your main character, like or at least one of them in the book. This is the guy you're supposed to root for, and yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that was, that was the trick on the squad, was to take people that you really shouldn't like, and you're rooting for them. Right. I've read uh, uh, several books where uh, that's like that. There's um, there was a series uh, called Flashman by George McDonald Frazier. Um, actually, one of them was made into a movie, Royal Flash, um, with Ryder McDowell. No, oh, yeah. Not, not Ryder McDowell. I'm trying to think who that was. But anyways, um, and... Um, the Flashman concept was something that would appeal to me a lot because uh, Flashman was originally a, a character in an old classic uh, uh, British boys book uh, called Tom Brown's School Days, and he was uh, he was Tom's uh, nemesis. He was a punk. He was a bad boy. He was a coward. He was a braggart, a bully, and then he gets tossed out of the school and out of the book. And George McDonald Fraser picks him up from when he got kicked out of the book and starts writing some 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 historical novels with him in it. And a flashman hasn't changed a bit. You know, like he's still the bully, the braggart, the cat. <laughs> uh, and in fact, uh, the con- that concept went very much into uh, my writing of Captain Boomerang. Okay. In the book, right? Squad, uh, uh, because. I wanted somebody who was a rotter, a cad, you know, uh, uh, and he can be fun. He can be fun to watch, but you know, and he's very content with who he is. You know, he has no problem whatsoever being who he is. You know, uh, in that way, he's sort of well adjusted. Uh, uh, but the fun part with uh, Boomerang in the squad was that every time you think. He's descended about as low as he can. He finds another level to drop to. <laughs> That's always fun. It, it, 
it's fun to hear you, you know, explain, because I've also read about, you know, your interpretations, and I've read the, the books of your interpretations of these characters, which well, I guess they're originations more than interpretations, but as much as I enjoyed the, uh, we spoke about this at Motor City, uh, we both kind of enjoyed uh, the Suicide Squad version on the Arrow TV show, uh, that it was a pretty good, you know, the guy was, you know, pretty good who did Floyd Lawton. Yeah. I think it's, I think Will Smith's, at least from what we see, is going to be a little bit more similar to what you were going for. Well, what I, uh, I, I mean, I met the guy who was doing it on Arrow, and a really nice guy, and he was very complimentary. But uh, uh, when I heard Will Smith was being cast as it, I went, oh, boom. There you go. You know, uh, Smith is a major, major star, which means that uh, the movie, the squad movie, is going to be taken very seriously. It's not just something that's being tossed off. This is going to be a major league movie. And then they get Jared Leto in it, Margot Robbie, and uh, God, everybody else. Well, that's, uh, you know, one thing about them nailing your characters is there's one scene in the trailer uh, that one scene where Captain Boomerang is ducking behind the car during the fight, and he opens a beer and takes a sip <laughs> yeah. as he's kind of ducking away. Just yeah. that one shot, I was like, perfect. That's going to be so much fun. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and when uh, – uh, I, I forgot to mention for a second, but I should, because when they also they cast uh, Viola Davis as Amanda Waller, I went, oh, boy, they know what they're doing. Yeah. Particularly when I saw her in the first trailer – and the things that she was saying to the people around her about what she was doing, God, that could have been taken straight out of the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I heard some talk about Oprah Winfrey in the beginning. Uh, she would have been wonderful, too. You know, uh, both of them have very strong attitudes, and that's what is about, uh, what Waller's about. You know, it, she doesn't need superpowers. She's got that, she's the wall. Yeah. If she's done right, she is so hateable. I mean, they've... I, especially, I think, in the animated features, uh, yeah. uh, especially, you know, I guess Ar- uh, Assault on Arkham might have been the first non-comic take on the Suicide Squad, then. I'm thinking. I'm, uh, I, I, I couldn't say. I, don't, uh, I haven't kept up on the animation. Yeah, no, so. I'm not sure if they've done before, but I, but that was the, uh, the Assault on Arkham. I'm not sure if you've seen that one. Uh, that was a fantastic take on the Suicide Squad. The whole movie, it was basically a Suicide Squad movie guised as a Batman movie. Huh. And uh, it was it was really well done. And uh, same thing, just the, the wall was just so cold and, you know, she was almost one of the things she was trying to capture, you know? It's, yeah. It's well, like, C.H. Founder, you know, uh, who I believe did the voice job there as well as other places, uh, was someone I, I always thought was a really good choice for Waller. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be fun to see, and it was it was strange how they went that different direction on Arrow, eh? Like it, she kind of had the attitude, but just the last person you'd picture is Amanda Waller, you know? Yeah, they decided to go for uh, the young and slim, uh, which they also did in the comics. Oh, uh, did they do? I didn't know they'd switched it in the comics. Oh yeah, oh yeah, she was appealing. Uh, um, she was also very much, you know. In fact, I think she was. When they rebooted, they they made her more in that image than than in the traditional Waller image. Oh, that's that's far less intimidating. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I understand you know, that they can make the choices that they want, but there were reasons why I wanted her to look like that, and that's because visually it gives, particularly in the comics, it gives you know like a sense of her power. You know, uh, when you see a woman that size backing up Batman, as happened on one of the covers. Yeah. Uh, uh, you can believe it. You can accept it. You know, but if she's young and pretty and slight, you go, mm, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's the farthest they've probably gone away from anything, though. I uh, I was reading your column on uh, Comics Mix recently, uh, and you were you wrote about the, uh, the Felicity Smoke incident on Arrow there. And uh, how they've basically oracled her out, uh, but it must have been nice because he did. He did. Uh, he did say, "I was going to call you Oracle, but that, but the name was taken." Yeah, that's you know, that's a nice. I, again, they're very good about doing little Easter eggs and little throwaways. At least they're acknowledging that they're screwing with your stuff, right? <laughs> no, yeah, uh, uh, the nice thing about people doing this is that they know the source material. 
And they're not trying to apologize for it, and they're not trying to pretend it isn't that way. I mean, there was a point where people would be doing superhero stuff, and it's almost apologizing for it. I mean, you, if you take a look at the uh, first Christopher Reeve Superman movie, Reeve is wonderful in it, but then for a lot of the stuff, particularly with Lex Luthor and his bumbling henchmen, you know, it's like they're camping it up there going, well, just, well, you can't take this seriously. Which is too bad because uh, Christopher Reeve made you take it seriously. Yeah, they went for a very fifties comic book. They went for the very <laughs> the purest kind of story they could out of that one, which kind of it fit the times. You know, I always felt there was a lot of similarities between the fifties and the eighties, and just kind of society's outlook on things. You know, mm-hmm. so you know there was a certain nostalgia for the fifties and the eighties that was that was pretty strong. So that whole wholesome Superman thing. And uh, now it's it's amazing. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more people out there, and there's a lot more, you know, teenagers and kids are the main consumers these days. They're, it's not like the 80s where we had to beg our parents to buy us stuff. You know, everything's aimed directly at them now. So, obviously, there's a, there's a lot of changes, and I it's, it's hard because there's such polarization. I mean, I personally loved Man of Steel, but at the same time, I can understand why a lot of people weren't super you know, fans of it. How did you feel about that? I liked it. It wasn't my favorite Superman film, but it, it, but I liked it. There were problems that I had with it, um, like the way that Jonathan Kent dies. I right. thought, well, that, and my thought was, well, that's just bogus. Also, you know, like the idea, um, particularly from the uh, comic books and also from, again, the first Superman movie, was that um, when Clark realizes that for all his power, he couldn't save him. Well, with Jonathan Kent in Man of Steel, he could have saved him. Right. But his father tells him, no, don't do it. You know, against like Superman would have done it. What do you have, like, in a way, though, in a different world? Because, I mean, I, I kind of look at it as a perspective of, I, I get, you know, why he could have saved him so easily. But at the same time, Jonathan Kent, a lot of people look at it like he's supposed to be this moral center for Superman. But I kind of also see the side of he loved his own child you know, the, his love for his own child was almost more important than the world's safety. Like, selfish or not, that's kind of where I felt he was coming from. So had Clark saved him at that moment, he would have completely outed himself at the same time. So Yeah, but, but I think you could have played with that as well. Also, you know, if the screenwriter chose to put John the Kent into that um, situation. Right. Um, I, I just think it's more effective when it's something that nothing Clark could have done would have saved his father's life. Um, uh, even on the TV show, Smallville. Yeah, the heart attack, of course. Yes. Mark isn't there you know, when his father dies. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, and I think that's important because it play, you know, the man of steel is physically invulnerable, but he, he should be emotionally very vulnerable. And one of the emotionally vulnerable spots, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that he couldn't save his father. He can't always save the people who are closest to him. You know, so for all this power, there's still a place where he's vulnerable. I completely understand. That's a very good point. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, at least they're opening it up to the way that we can have these type of discussions now. That's one thing yeah. I, I'm also appreciating about Warner Brothers is, like, don't get me wrong, like any comic fan, I love Marvel and I love Marvel movies. But, you know, there's a formula there. There's a certain amount of boundaries that are on those movies, as incredible as some of them are. Like, I think Winter Soldier, can't wait for Civil War. I think, you know, I've never been a Cap fan, and his movies are probably my favorite. But still, there's a certain structure there. Where DC, again, Warner Brothers, are kind of like, you know what, go for it. Like, let let the chips fall where they may sort of thing. And... You know, I think some really exciting stuff's going to come out of it. Like, even though Man of Steel, or sorry, Batman vs. Superman and Suicide Squad are in the same universe, I have a feeling they're going to be such drastically different movies that that's going to be a lot of fun, you know? Well, actually, that's what I'm kind of hoping, is that uh, the Squad movie will be actually unlike anything, any other superhero film you've seen, if only because these aren't heroes. Right, like, and I think it will. I, I definitely think it will, and I think it's going to be just, just. Uh, I mean, David Ayer and his outlook on it. He's had so much fun making it. How can this movie not end up being a blast? And if Will Smith, as big a star as he is, 
is willing to take a risk and be in this kind of movie, it he's going to put his all into it. He's not going to, oh, yeah. you know, he's not going to want to kind of just, he's not going to want it to look like he just wanted to be in a superhero movie because this isn't your typical superhero movie, right? Yeah. Also, I think the I think the casting of Jared Leto was brilliant, you know, like, um, as the Joker, because um, after the last portrayal of the of the Joker, you know, how do you follow that? How do you follow that? Well, you do it by getting an actor who's every bit as good, who's an Academy Award winner, and giving a different interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, uh, I'm I mostly it see it yeah differently. I'm most excited for this one. I think uh, my favorite is as much as I get the Heath Ledger thing. My Joker has always been that that insane psychopath that just that not really chaos and anarchy as much as complete unpredictability. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I still, until I see this one, I, I think I preferred Jax over uh, Heats just for the, I don't know, just the, the the insanity of it. Like, like Heath Ledger almost had too much of a plan towards anarchy. Does that, I don't know if that makes sense, but, uh, but I, I, yeah, I'm really looking forward to Jared Leto. And uh, I like the idea, at first, a lot of people thought he was actually maybe going to be on the squad, but it kind of looks like... He's the squad's mission, which is very exciting. Yeah, I uh, I don't know, but I'm but I'm eagerly looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, he's he's so good. I mean, you know, I actually I remember once hearing uh, Neil Adams recommend uh, he would have thought Matt Smith would have made a great jo- Joker. Mm, physically, yeah. And yeah, physically, I think he probably could have. Yeah, I don't think he would have went as far. I mean, he's just not as experienced and kind of. Methody actor is Jared Leto, but that's you know he's gonna go somewhere with. Oh, I'm so excited for this! It's, yeah, it's gonna be amazing times. Um, so much going on. I wanted to also touch on uh, uh, again, Star Wars is what brought me into your work, and I've been trying to you know get my hands on more of it. So when I met you in Motor City, there I bought the trade for the Martian Manhunter you did with uh, Tom Mandrake. Yeah. And I took that with me, and I read that on the beach in the Dominican Republic. Ah. And hell of a read. And I got so into that book that literally at one point I looked up and was like, oh, yeah, I'm on a beach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another, maybe just touch on that for a moment, another situation where you took a story, kind of reverse engineered it, and uh, went a little di- different way with it, you know? Well, what we did with, um, with Martian Manhunter, Tom Mandrick and I, we had just come off our run on the, on the Spectre, and we're looking for something else to do. And um, with the Spectre, you know, like it was one long saga uh, from beginning to end. But with Martian Manhunter, uh, what we were interested in is why was he not Superman? Why was he not just a green version of Superman? You know, like how was he different? What made him different? Uh, and what made him different, um, or one of the principal things as far as I'm concerned, is that uh, Kal-El comes to Earth as an infant, so, and, he, and he's raised as a human. So although he's born a Kryptonian, he's basically raised in Kansas. Those are his, those are his values. But with John Jones, you know, uh, when he comes to Earth, he's a full adult. You know, he's had a family. There's this whole society that he came from on Mars, and that's what we wanted to explore a, a bit. And in the book was... What was the what made him up? What or uh, what were the cultural influences? What was his society like? What would it be like to be in a um, in a society where everyone's telepathic? Um, one of the things that we figured out is that since he could um, go intangible and go through uh, walls, is that the homes on Mars for all of them, since they would all have that same ability, there would be no doors. <laughs> You would just you would just pass through the wall and go into the home. <laughs> it's just too much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you like? What's your process for these things? Is it just to sit around with friends and kind of chat it out? And because you do have the tight little group there, as far as you know, with you and Jan and Tom and you and working with Kim and you had, you know, was it just like sitting around with friends and family and shooting out ideas and you know? Well, how- it would depend upon the project. You know, like we would sit down and. We would dope things out. For instance, with Jan on Star Wars, well, we plotted it together. You know, uh, 
I mean, I'm fully capable of going out and plotting stuff all, all by myself. I'm real good at that. But for Jan, it was more important that she have an active part in it. And the, uh, and the result was a better story or a better series of stories. And, uh, and I suppose that's really what I come down to. I have less ego about it and more, um, for me, the question is, what's good for the story? What makes the story stronger? Uh, because that's what we're selling to folks like you, you know, uh, to, mm-hmm. to anyone who might be listening. You're, you're the readers, and um, it's my concern that you get the best story that I'm capable of doing. So, uh, so first and foremost, that is my goal, is what's good for the story. Right. Um. You and Jan, did you create – I know Jan created – I'm not sure how much hand you had in it, but I know you wrote on the stories, Ilya Secura and Quinlan Voss. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, in fact, I was coming up with the concept of the story before Jan was brought onto it. Uh, I think I had to plot for the first story with, with Quinn in it. Um, at the time, that was just going to be a fill-in story. And so uh, – Jan and I both figured, okay, let's write the best Star Wars stories, you know, do the best Star Wars story that we can. So we invented Quinn and, and Ayla and, um, and Grach, or Billy, you know, uh, again, because you didn't want to go tripping over everyone else's continuity. Mm-hmm. Jan, who has these incredible eyes, uh, she picked up from a background scene in The Phantom Menace. There was a character who was in a background cantina scene for like maybe a half second. But she spotted him. She drew him in. And so Quinn, per se, does appear in, in the background of The Phantom Menace. <laughs> but you'd have to freeze frame the, uh, that section just to see. So so we got the look for him from, from the movie. Uh, I Jan- have, that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Again, you know, we both love Star Wars, and so we wanted to pour that love of the uh, Star Wars saga into what we were doing. And then later on, when we got a chance to do more, we just started doing more with Quinn. Um, what was interesting about Ayla, uh, his, uh, his Padawan in the early stories, was that uh, I fully intended to kill her off at the end of the first story. And... Um, uh, Sean Mandrake, who is uh, Jan and Tom's daughter, who was young at the time, but um, she really liked Ayla, and she says there aren't many really good female Jedis, and there weren't any that were Twi'leks. So um, I said, okay, we'll let her live. (laughs) And we did, and I'm so glad we did. So how did they make the transition to film then? Um, Basically, Lucas saw it, liked the looks, and said, okay, and grabbed him and put him on. That is... There they were. That's got to be amazing. That's got to feel so incredible. Not just that you got to write Star Wars characters, but invent some that he liked enough to put in the movies. That's got to feel great. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting, because I don't know if there are many other characters, if any, who went from comics first into the movies. Usually, it goes the opposite way, from movies into the comics or the other stories. But ours was the first one, I think, that went from the comics into the movies. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, Quinlan Voss, he's, he's, he's been on the, I think he was on the Clone Wars cartoon. Yeah, and recently they did, they did a, a, a Star Wars novel, Dark uh, Disciples, that had both uh, the Clone Wars version of Quinn and, uh, and then Asajj Ventress in it. So, um, so he's appeared in a recent novel as well. That's That's got to be so exciting. Um, Except that it's getting so hard to keep track. There's one thing uh, that I didn't understand. Because basically they said, okay, the six movies and the Clone Wars cartoon, and that's it. Yeah, and that's I, what Lucas said, yeah. Yeah, I understood that they wanted to really, really keep it tight. But I didn't understand why uh, – did you see the Tarkovsky, the Tarkovsky Clone Wars, the animated ones that were yeah. like three minutes and then collected into kind of the longer feature? Yeah. Uh, Lucas had so much input into those to the point where they lead directly into Revenge of the Sith 
and then canceled them out when really there was nothing like interference. That's the one thing that kind of bummed me out because I thought everything about those cartoons, the writing, the animation was just spectacular. I really, really enjoyed those. So, you know, well, that was Uncle George's prerogative. You know, you know, he was the uh, it was his sandbox and he was letting us play in it. It's got to be weird for him now, though, eh? <laughs> it's got to be. He's very generous about letting us do it, although it's always within the concept that he could ignore whatever we did. Right. So, so that was part of the part of the deal when you entered into it. It was nice that uh, they they kind of took a few things from the EU in a way yeah. for episode seven. I mean, it was nice to see that Kylo Ren was named Ben. Mm-hmm. Do you have any theories on Ray? Um, I I would guess that she's got to be descended somehow from from Luke. Does that not seem a little too coincidental? No, no, not to me. I mean, uh, I mean, if you're following the tropes of Star Wars, right? It's very much uh, a family saga, and so in order to continue with, I mean, you've got Kylo Ren, Ben, who killed his dad. You know, so spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, who else? Who else have you got? And uh, I mean, we don't know that Luke ever had a kid, but it seems reasonable to me that she's either the daughter or the granddaughter. Yeah, it's, uh, see, it's easier for me to forget about things like that because, like I said, I was, you know, I came into it through the comics because I, I love the Jedi. I just, I, I never even got hooked to to the whole movie thing when I was young and all the, you know, people see the Falcon, they get excited. For me, it's just always been Jedi, Jedi, Jedi. I cannot get enough of Jedi stories, Jedi comics, Jedi books, so I'm more excited for episode eight than I think I was for episode seven because I kind of had an idea what was coming. Uh-huh. And now that what they've laid out for as far as where Luke has been and what Luke has been up to, uh, I'm really, really excited. We got to see the Force Vision, which we've never seen before. Uh-huh. And uh, I was really impressed that they went ahead and did that because, you know, there's never been any kind of playing with time, even in flashbacks or anything on Star Wars. So, yeah. you know, I'm really excited to see where this goes next, you know. I, I Things I loved about the prequels, you know, whether you think they're wonderfully made movies or not, I got to see an army of Jedi, you know. Mm-hmm. I got to see the Jedi Temple. I got to see Padawan's training. All the stuff I wanted to see. So maybe we'll get to go a little further in depth. Maybe I get to see Rey making her own lightsaber, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, it's... It's interesting. I think they did well. Obviously, they did a wonderful job of bringing it back. I mean, it's made more than a billion. I mean, it's going to hit two billion <laughs> before it's done. And this is even before you know it comes out on a Blu-ray and DVD. I mean, those sales are just going to go nuts. Yeah, it's strange to think we live in a world where we're going to get a Star Wars story every year. For forever. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, like, I mean, when Disney bought it, they didn't pay out that kind of money just to have an occasional movie and maybe three and out. Oh no! no. Oh. <laughs> Is there anything out there that uh, you've maybe always wanted to try getting your hands on that haven't had a chance to yet? I know. Do you mean in comics or comics, movies? Is just the, are there any IPs out there that you you are like into enough? Like like you tried to dabble in the Who a bit there. Is there anything else that you're, you know, really really curious about? Or well, you know, in comics, some of the mystical characters like Doctor Fate, Doctor Strange, the Demon, I you know, those are all characters you know that I haven't really played with that I would that I would really enjoy getting a hold of. That's fun. Um. Your your kind of your your DC work is you know a little more on the table that even though you've done plenty of work for Marvel, why do you think that is? Why do you think people still gravitate to your DC work? Well, um, there's there's a lot more of it to begin with. True. And, <laughs> uh, uh, for a while, Marvel just wasn't looking at me. Um, later on, they were, you know, and uh, and I'm very pleased with what I've been able to do over at Marvel. Uh, uh, but uh, it's just the fact that the majority of my work really was over at DC. I guess uh, just, yeah, 
quantity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, I, I mean, not all of them are gems. God knows you can't write that much and have them work out that well, but. Yeah. Well, the ones that are gems are so bright and shiny that uh, I don't think anybody's too particularly concerned about the other stuff. So, <laughs> uh, what were the biggest thrills throughout your career? Like, as far as things you got to work on or moments, like, like what was more of a thrill, getting to work on Star Wars or Batman? Oh, geez, they're, uh, they're such different characters. <laughs> no, but just the general feeling you got, like, 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 what, what's the stuff you've gotten really, really excited that you've had a chance to get involved with? Well, one of the things uh, that I loved doing uh, was the Kents. Okay, uh, yeah, historical western, um, and I had long wanted to do a western, particularly a historical western over at DC, and I'd make proposals to different editors, and they all said, "No, kid." You know, uh, Westerns, they, don't, they just don't sell. But Peter Tomasi, when I, I was telling about different projects that I w- was interested in doing, and, he's, and he liked the Western. I said, well, good luck, you know, if they've said no to that a billion times. He says, let me try. And so he did, and he got um, the okay for us to do the Western. Although what was interesting was at the time was that the, uh, I was going to use Floyd Lawton's family. Uh-huh. as the historical context, um, because some, some of the members weren't going to be all that nice. And uh, so I figured, well, they would let me do that with Lawton's fan. But uh, uh, Paul Levitz, who was the editor, um, he liked the idea, but then he said, he says, well, why Lawton? Why not do, say, like a Superman? And, and Pete told him, he says, well, you know, some of them are not going to be all that savory. And Paul's reaction was so. And so as a result of Paul Levitz, we were able to take uh, Superman's forebearers, or his adopted forebearers. Oh, that's so much fun. I haven't had a chance to read that yet, but I was reading about it, and now I really want to get my hands on it. Because like I said, I love when you do that stuff, when you go back. I'm and you... proud of it, because we did a lot of historical uh, research for it. And the artists that I got for it, uh, both uh, Tim Truman and Tom Andre, uh, just do really wonderful uh, historical research for stuff like that. Um, Legends of Tomorrow, they're going to be doing a Western episode soon, I believe, with uh, Jonah Hex. <laughs> that's kind of cool. Yeah, so that's going to be neat to see them uh, pop back there. Have you been enjoying that show? Yeah, yeah, and I will say that they, uh, when they off the character recently, I was that did catch, catch me by surprise. I kind of thought it might be coming. I was surprised that he was made such uh, a member in the first place because they had been so pushing Hawkwoman. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I, you know, I, I kind of went, oh, okay, the, it happened. I kind of, I don't know why, but I, I didn't expect him to go too long. <laughs> well, I, I, I wasn't anticipating he was going that fast. And, of course, you know, I, I'd worked with Hawkman. Uh, yes, Hawkworld, yes. In Hawkworld. Although that was the alien version uh, rather than the human version. But, yeah, uh, that was fun. You know, um, that series was was interesting to do and was fun. Um, and then seeing him on TV and then get killed that fast made me go, whoo, what? <laughs> yes. Okay, that happened. <laughs> yeah. uh, Supergirl, as well, uh, of course, again, there's there's so many offshoots to your involvement in Supergirl as far as uh, Martian Manhunter being on the show now. That yeah. that blew my mind. I couldn't believe they went ahead and did that. I was like, right on. Well, the first time I saw the red eyes there, I said, okay, he's not who he, who he seems to be. Who is he? <laughs> And my first thought was actually John Jones. Really? Yeah. I totally thought bad guy. Like, he's going to be a bad guy of some sort, but uh, you picked up on that, huh? <laughs> yeah, and then and then when they actually unveiled him, I went, oh, that is so cool. Yeah, yeah. And they did a good look for him as well, so. Oh, he looks amazing. That's like movie quality. Yeah, and the, uh, uh, and the actor playing him, they did an interview with him where he cited... Um, um, our series 
as being one of the influences, you know, one of the one of the big resources that they used. Oh, they stuck right with it. It was, uh, yeah. yeah, it was great when they do the flashback and he tells his story. Uh, I actually thought of you, to be honest. I was like, I bet you, uh, I bet you, Mr. Ostrander's enjoying this right now. <laughs> I am, I am, you know, and uh, I'm perfectly okay with it not being a word for word transcription of what I did, you know, because I uh, I've worked in theater and, and other things. I know you have to make changes to work into uh, to adapt to a certain medium well this is actually i'm glad you brought that up and uh so i didn't forget i wanted to talk to you about that because you are one of the more open-minded positive influences out there as far as things having to be adapted to different mediums and uh i really appreciate that because you know there's a lot of those writers out there that get quite curmudgeoned over you know their source material being messed with but you kind of don't have a choice. I mean, if you if you weren't going to adapt properly, Watchmen would have ended with a giant squid monster, you know, yeah. which, which wouldn't have felt right. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I always thought that that was kind of a silly ending to that to a really great series. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, Alan Moore is terrific. There's no question about it. You know, one of the greats, but he has his bad days, as we all do. Mm-hmm. And it, well, it's nice that you're you seem to have so much fun with it, you know. Like you seem to be enjoying this as much as any fan, which is it's it's always great to see. And uh, you know, and you're also you're very active on uh, on Facebook and the social media there. And uh, it's just nice when you see positive interaction with somebody who's had such a career as yours. You know, it it you know it lends a lot of help to the kids who see this and they're like, you know, he's worked hard and now he's having a good time and. Well, I've been a fan all my life, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, uh, one of my first reactions, uh, I mean, I became a, uh, a rookie in comic books in my early 30s, you know, which is a little bit late for, like, most people, but I came to it then with a life and some experience. But more than that, uh, one of my first reactions when I got my first paying gig was, great, now I have a reason to be going into the comic book store and buying all the comic books I buy everything. <laughs> it's research now. Honest. Because you, you read the Star Wars novel before the movies were even out, correct? That's right. That's right. You know, I, I, I saw it in the, uh, again, in the comic book store. It looked interesting. I liked the cover. So I thought I'd go home and read it. And I liked it. I said, gee, if they can get about half of what's on the page into the movie, It'll be great. And then they got about two hundred percent of what was on the page into the movie. <laughs> was it just and another I was blown bo- away? Was it just another book on the shelf you grabbed, or was there buzz about it? Were people talking about? It wasn't particularly buzz. I mean, it was it was out on the counter, so it wasn't with, with the other books. It just that's how I happened to find it. But um, there wasn't a big buzz about it. I mean, you, I mean, cast your mind back. But at that time, the idea of doing this kind of movie. And they would go anywhere was was silly. I mean, one of the reasons they brought it out uh, during the movie, or I mean, during the summer, was that uh, aside from Jaws, you know, like, um, you just didn't bring out big movies during the summer, right? Because the theory was no one was going to the theater during the summer, you know, <laughs> going going to the movies. Times so, have changed. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Star Wars, Star Wars, hugely, hugely changed that. You know, it, it gave rise to the whole concept of blockbuster and tentpole movies. Um, the reason that Lucas was able to retain the merchandising rights, which was really the basis of his uh, fortune, mm-hmm. is, uh, is the fact that they didn't think it was worth anything. Oh, yeah. Nobody sold toys for anything back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you had a tie-in, okay, maybe you might have one or two things, but, you know, not like uh, uh, Lucas has done with Star Wars. Yeah stuff so uh, uh, that was just a completely different world at the time you know uh, uh, also it, uh, it was a much more cynical time uh, this was the era of, uh, of Watergate you know uh, where you didn't trust things uh, the Vietnamese War right. it, was, um, it was the era of the anti-hero in movies five easy pieces and stuff like that so um and then here comes this thing that is unrepentantly heroic. And furthermore, it gives you heroes that you can believe in. And they're not going to go bad on you because they're movies. You know, you know that's, that's there. And so uh, you can trust them in ways that uh, 
people were just hungry for for a story like that, and it tapped right in. They didn't sell something that everyone else was doing. They um, they had uh, Lucas had a vision, and he created it, and people simply responded. Yeah, I guess you can never tell what's gonna hit. You know what I mean? It's such a simple idea as okay, a handle with a laser sword coming out, but it's like the most iconic weapon in all of like fiction now. You know, yeah. like not only did it have that epic scope and that Shakespearean story, big space opera, but it was just cool. Like it yeah. was just the coolest ideas you'd seen. You know, I mean, I mean, you had ne- you had never seen special effects like that before. I mean, uh, you would get space things like. Douglas Trumbull doing 2001, which, don't get me wrong, is, is spectacular and wonderful and incredible. But the, the first time you sit down and see what's now episode four, but the first Star Wars movie, and you get hit with that thunderous, you know, uh, overture. And then the first thing you see is this spaceship coming in uh, uh Above you, it looks like it's, it. It looks huge, but then it's being pursued by another uh, spaceship, a star destroyer that's even huger. It seems to go on forever, <laughs> and you go, "Oh my God, where am I?" <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's amazing stuff. Um, are are you still in the Chicago area? No, no. Uh, years ago, I moved uh, to the East Coast, and now actually, I'm in Michigan. Okay, I thought you were still in Michigan, and uh, okay, good. I didn't screw up. Uh, you know, it's the bane of every podcaster's existence or time zones. Sure. Like, oh, it's just, it's ridiculous. But, uh, okay, I didn't screw it up that bad. Um, well, I was just going to say, I'm actually, uh, I decided this year I would check out C2E2. Oh. Uh, because I, I've never been, and I have a million friends who are in the industry or whatever, and who all go every year and... I always feel like the one guy who hasn't. I always feel left out. So I decide, you know what, this year I'm going to try it out. So, you know, I applied for press and got approved. So I'm going to go down there for C2E2. And guess what happens? On the weekend of C2E2, Toronto Comic Con decides to put together one of the most killer lineups they've had in years. (laughs) So I'm actually leaving my hometown of Toronto here to go to Chicago, and I believe you're going to be attending Toronto Comic Con. Yep. Uh, you been up? I won't be at C two E two. Yeah, just silly. So say again, sorry. I won't be at C two E two. I know, and you're coming here, and I'm leaving, and uh, but I, I'm sure, hopefully, I'll get to uh, cross paths with you again. Have you been to Toronto before? Uh, once or twice. You know, I'll, uh, my my experience has been brief, uh, both times, but uh, my impression has always been uh, a lovely city and something I'd be actually. Uh, inclined to visit as a vacation spot and explore a bit on my own. Uh, you know, I had a few friends come up from Michigan. For some reason, I, I have this little base, this loyal base of fans in Michigan. I don't know why, but uh, <laughs> it seems to be the spot that I caught on. But uh, a bunch of them came up for Fan Expo last year and actually did that. They did a few tours of the city, like walk-around tours, and they had a great time. You never think about the city you live in as having right. so much to do. But after they told me about all the tours and stuff they went on, I was like, you know, I should explore my own city a little more. Like, I know. Uh, when you live in the city, you're, you don't always do the touristy things. And you should. Once. I mean, even with Chicago. you know, like, I, I mean, I lived there most of my early life uh, until I was in my 30s. And, and so at least half my life was there. And, uh, and there were things that for a long time I had never gotten around to seeing or doing. Just because there were touristy attractions, and then eventually I did, and I went, "Why did I never do this?" <laughs> I mean, Toronto has a castle. It's called Castleoma. Okay. And I've never been in it. It's a, it's literally it's a castle that some guy made back in the early 1900s in the middle of the city, up on a hill, Castleoma. It's a literal castle, and I've never been in it. It's you should. <laughs> I know it's. Should uh, you? Uh, I, I mean, we sort of go, you know, like, well, you know, that's just fan stuff. You know, that's touristy stuff, and I shouldn't be doing But you miss out on a lot of things. Oh, I mean, yeah. It, even when I was East Coast, it took me a long time before I actually went up in the Empire State Building. <laughs> you know what? Everyone should do that. Yeah. 
I have been up the CN Tower once when I was younger, and it was terrifying. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it took me a while before I actually rode on the Staten Island Ferry, and that's also worth doing. You know, that would be fun. We have a few ferries in Toronto here, but I have I, I have a feeling it's not quite like taking the Staten Island Ferry. You know, mm-hmm. so. <laughs> it's always good get out there and explore your cities kids did you ever see uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world no uh, I always tell people that there is no greater example of Toronto than actually watching that movie ah. uh, just as far as location because the the movie is not only shot in Toronto it's set in Toronto and yeah, it's always different because I mean so many films are filmed in Toronto. Yes. How many are, but it's always Toronto pretending to be somewhere else. Always. So, you know, it's really cool to get to watch that movie, and there's a scene where uh, Scott Pilgrim has a big uh, fight scene with Chris Evans, Mm -hmm. and that takes place at Casaloma. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, and just like, you know, the the pizza pizza they eat at, I've eaten pizza there a million times, all the places they go to see shows, so I always recommend that. If anybody wants to see Toronto very well, like, actually see how it is without, you know, if they can't get here, is watch Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. It's a comic book movie set in Toronto, so... (laughs) You know, you can't get much better than that. Um, there you go. That is an incredible hour of hanging out with John Ostrander. Sir, thank you so much for taking the time. Much my pleasure. Uh, I'm so excited for you and to get to be so excited for all the exciting things. There's just too much excitement going on. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, there you go, kids. Uh, that is all we are going to have this week on An Elegant Weapon. Take it easy.